Hello, everyone. It's uh, Dan Bossy uh, for another episode of Old Folks Talk Rain. In this case, it's Old Men Talk Rain because I'm here with uh, Scott Euknis. Scott, I don't mean to mean, mean to say you're old, but uh, you know it's part of the wisdom that goes with this podcast in trying to reflect on the grain industry. Now, today, uh, the USDA indicated that uh, 34% of the U.S. corn area was in drought. That's the highest we can find in a growing season. I kind of look at growing seasons from May 1st up into the first week of September, looking all the way back for about five years. So we're starting out with uh, far less, uh, let's say, gas in the tank or moisture in the soil than what we've seen in a long, long time. So with that, I thought it would be a really good idea to have Scott to talk to. Scott was a featured presenter at GrainCom in Geneva uh, a few weeks ago, and Scott highlighted, along with Dr. Olivia Kellner, a, a new thesis about climate change and what's going on. And I think, Scott, you called it the warm blob. So with that in mind, Scott, what we like to do at uh, at this podcast is, first of all, know a little bit more about you and understand your background and then kind of get into the topic at hand, which, you know, at the moment, front and center is U.S. weather. So welcome to Old Folks Do Grain. Well, thank you very much, Dan. It's um, it's a pleasure to uh, be talking to you today. Well, Scott, tell, tell me a little bit about uh, your background. <clears throat> uh, you know, just give me a, a few minute sketch of Climate Impact Company, yourself, and your career as it started in this business. How does a guy who like you, who uh, you know is a is, is an esteemed uh, long range forecaster, get in the ag or even in the uh, commodity business? Well, I, I appreciate the uh, the compliment. It's it's a long story. Um, you know, uh, Climate Impact Company it started in two thousand four. So you know, we're about nineteen. We've been around now for about nineteen years, and I think what motivated that was just a a lot of interest in climate, which really began when, you know, we went into the um, deregulated markets back in the uh, mid to late 1990s. At that time, uh, you know, weather was a, a big part of that and, and climate, um, you know, we're fiddling around with new models and so forth. And I was a bit of a part of that with some of the larger energy companies in, in the U.S. at the time, Tennessee Valley Authority, Southern companies, a couple that come to mind. So there was a lot of interest, especially on the energy side in climate. And it's just evolved from there. You know, I think everyone knows that uh, all the private, a lot of private weather companies are involved with that now. Certainly, uh, you know, NOAA and, and many government agencies around the world. And, you know, during this climate change era, there's just one thing after another that's always changing. I, I think the best way that I could summarize my experience with climate is that you know initially I was involved because of uh, you know some ability to, to forecast climate, some understanding of the models and so forth. This is going back to the mid late 1990s, and the method you know that we developed you know once Climate Impact Company started in 2004 has almost changed 180 degrees be, because of the changing climate. So it's a it's been a fascinating ride to learn about all these new aspects of climate, which are just becoming more and more dominant. It used to be ENSO, La Nina, El Nino. We talk about that. Commodities markets you know, rally on, on that type of information. But it's not just that now. Um, there are other things, as you mentioned, at GrainCom, we talked about marine heat waves, initially known as warm blobs, these unexplained large masses of very warm water out 
uh, taking up big parts of the ocean and uh, certainly affecting the ecosystem. And we're learning more and more about how that affects climate. So, you know, just to, you know, answer your question as best as I can, I, I think it's been just learning so much more about our changing climate system and trying, you know, as best as we can, it's not easy uh, to make climate forecasts. And like I say, the, the process by which we do this um, has changed a lot over the last 20 years and it's accelerating. I expect to see more changes going forward and it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. Uh, that's why people are are meteorologists <laughs> because it's it's a lot of fun and certainly to work with all the clientele that we have a chance to to work with through you know through the years. Well Scott, I've followed you for a long time, I think even going back to 2004 and maybe even before that and and you do a, just a great job by the way. Uh climate is difficult to get your arms around. Yet, you know, I I think in the media and maybe in politics, everybody wants to make climate change something more than what it is and I think both of us agree statistically climate is changing all the time. I mean, I don't think there's any debate about that. I really don't want to get into whether it's produced by God or man. I think we'll leave that up to the politicians. But our job is really in the commodity markets is to better understand climate and to then help us make some longer term decisions, which you do very aptly. So uh, with, with that in mind, you know, tell me a little more about these uh, marine heat waves, which you coined to be warm blobs uh, after, uh, I think you said, a 1950s or 60s movie that came out long ago. Yeah, the um, in 2013 and in the following couple of years through 2015 in the Northeast Pacific, there was a large area of unexplained warm water at the not not only at the surface, but extending down to three, four hundred meters. And, you know, you know, out in the ocean, um, the photoplankton, all the types of nutrients that are in the ocean that feed um, fish, sustain the ecosystem, is created by the mixing layer between the relatively warm water in the upper portions of the ocean and, of course, the cold water as you go down 50 to 100 meters and more than that. Um, and there's mixing between that cold and warm water that creates these nutrients that I just described to you. But during this marine heat wave over the Northeast Pacific, the warm water, uh, warm anomalies stretched down to 300, 400 meters, as I mentioned a moment ago, and that completely wiped out the mixing layer and essentially eliminated, for the most part, the, the ability to generate photoplankton, which feeds a lot of the animals. A large area of um, um, algae formed at the surface of the ocean, covering you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles, very thick. Uh, limiting the amount of sun that could get beneath um, that photo beneath the, uh, the algae down into the deeper oceans and sucking up all the oxygen uh, in the upper oceans as well. So a real tough go for all the wildlife over thousands of miles over the Northeast Pacific. And eventually, you know, the, the animals that could migrate migrated to the coast, Northwest coast of the United States, West coast of Canada, uh, up towards Southern Alaska and, and even there, these same conditions were observed. And that, that created a situation where thousands and thousands of, of large fish, uh, whales, seals, uh, all types of large mammals uh, washing ashore. So it was a major, major event and completely unexplained. And the initial um, phrase to describe what had happened was, as you just mentioned, the, the, a blob, um, in this case, an oceanic warm blob because it simply was unexplained and devastating over such a large, large area. 
And the scientific community came up with that term. University of Washington scientists came up with that. And to be honest with you, since that time, I think we have a pretty good idea what happens in the ecosystem and the influence and effects on animals and, and wildlife. But the um, attachment, the correlation to climate, uh, we're still learning about. And what I've done, what I did at GrainCom is just report to the audience, and you know, we'll probably talk about it today, you know, what's been observed um, in the atmosphere as a response to these large areas of ocean warming. So that's what I'm what I have found is that it is such a profound correlation that anytime we're generating a climate forecast, and this goes for both hemispheres, not just the northern hemisphere, we have to consider this pattern that I just described to you, which is about 10 years old, and what climate scientists call a 10-year period of unique climate is an optimum climate normal. That's when a period of climate very much different from the typical 30-year normal, 30-year climatology that we use, develops. And we have to apply that to climate forecasts, um, almost eliminating or not even considering the typical 30-year normal that we would have um, if these regimes were not in place. So it's been a profound influence on climate. Uh, in a moment, I'll explain why this dry situation has developed uh, across the uh, the Corn Belt in May, very much related uh, to what we just talked about. Um, but that's that's a bit of a long-winded answer, But um, and I could probably go on about this for quite some time. But that's, in, just in summary, that's what we've observed. No, Scott, that's uh, very, very interesting. I, I, I guess what I hear you saying is that although the the industry and everybody likes to talk about ENSO, or as you say, El Nino, La Nina. Uh, we're now finding in climate research that indeed there's other drivers, maybe more important drivers. And, uh, and I think that's what you've really highlighted upon. And I know today, uh, you know, a lot of people in the grain or agricultural markets are looking at El Nino and suggesting that, well, with El Nino, we're going to have big crops or record large crops. But you know, I think that as uh, you state, as we've got record warm world ocean temperatures, maybe that's not the case. And so I'm leading you a little bit, I know, Scott, but I would like to get into, you know, a little bit about the blobs and what you're seeing and how this will help or hurt, if you will, uh, world agriculture as we look forward to the coming months. I think, the, Dan, I think the first thing to realize is what we've mentioned a couple of times so far is that the, the oceanic warming, it's not uniform. It's occurring uh, in strong measure in certain regions. So it's very apt to produce climate uh, variants regionally, not necessarily globally. So that's what we've been seeing with the, the, you know, the warm blobs. The other thing about this is it's affecting ENSO. So we have to at least take into consideration this mid-latitude ocean warming. And there is some cooling areas as well and apply those to what normally happens in ENSO. I, I don't think you can simply take a look at you know, analog years as to what El Nino has done through history and come up with a good idea as to what to expect going forward. The days of that are gone. We have to at least look at El Nino and La Nina events from the recent climate. Um, I have been using you know, the past 30 years, and now I'm starting to backtrack to maybe about 20 years years because the oceans are so warm outside of the tropics it's affecting the enso a typical enso climate and also i think lowering the skill for us to uh, uh, you know forecast enso very effectively we're seeing that right now if you went back two or three months and looked at an enso forecast all the climate models 
they're projecting an extremely intense El Nino, you know, 1997-2015 style, 1982. Those are the three biggest on record. You know, really just about now or over the next month or two. But it's not happening. The, the, off the northwest coast of South America, very warm, looks like a classic warm El Nino is developing, but that warmth simply cannot move westward through the areas where ENSO phase is measured. So we have that, that that's one aspect of what's going on to the north uh, in the middle latitude oceans is causing that. Now I'll come back to that in just a second. The other thing that we have, and this relates to the dryness in the Midwest, is um, opposite condition to what we've been talking about so far, which has been marine uh, warm uh, heat waves or warm blobs. There's a couple of cool blobs, if you will, out there also. And it's interesting that these all became uh, prominent in 2013, 2014, about 10 years ago. And there's one in the North Atlantic, been out there uh, with varying intensity, but it's always out there to the south of Greenland. Scientists have coined this the North Atlantic warm hole. And that's because over the last 25 years or so, since the mid to late 1990s, cycles have changed. The North Atlantic has warmed. So the North Atlantic almost always is warmer than normal, except for this cool pool of water to the south of Greenland. That's been created by the accelerating ice melt over Greenland and Northeast Canada in spring into early summer. And that water runs off to the south of Greenland into the Labrador Sea, creates a stratified cool layer in the upper layers of the ocean. And that blocks the Gulf Stream from getting over to Europe as effectively as it, as it used to. It also prevents warm water from coming up uh, underneath uh, that cool layer from the Atlantic uh, overturning circulation. But in the atmosphere, it's causing an upper trough to form because over that cooler water, the atmosphere aloft is cooling. Now, over the last couple of months, when this feature has redeveloped, it's very prominent right now, it's shifted further west than what we've seen over the last 10 years. It's just off the New England coast, south of uh, Southeast Canada, and a big upper trough is formed there. Now, from January to April, the east had the warmest start on record um, you know, for that four-month period. But once this trough developed in May, the east went very cool. And across the U.S. Corn Belt, the wind has been northwesterly. So a dry weather direction out of Canada and the ability to get moisture out of the Gulf of Mexico has been completely capped. So that's why we are all of a sudden accelerating into a dry pattern in the Ohio Valley. And NOAA issued a, a drought alert yesterday for most of the Ohio Valley into the Northeast as we head towards midsummer. That has all been created by the cool pool of water to the east of New England. It has nothing to do with ENSO. And as I mentioned before I made that description to you, the El Nino forecast has stalled. So all of this is related. These are very high impact events. The Corn Belt is drying out right now. El Nino has stalled. And it's because of what's going on in the mid-latitude oceans right now. You know, Scott, I remember very well back in 2012 when you talked similarly about a Midwest dry episode and it ended up being a, a rather disastrous drought. 
I mean, from what you're describing to me, there's some longevity with this pattern. Am, am I hearing you wrong or is that what you're suggesting? I think the pattern will break down, um, but it's going to be slowly. And the El Nino forecasts, which are very aggressive over our summertime, are probably not going to be anywhere near as aggressive. And we do need the El Nino to come on for the wetter pattern to develop, which typically the East Central US sees uh, during an, an El Nino. And that's probably going to be delayed until certainly late summer is what I'm you know, telling most of the, the folks I talk to right now. So this dry pattern that we have right now is certainly gonna last through June and probably into July. Um, but there's going to be hic- there's going to be hiccups though. If you looked at the GFS midday model run today, it was quite wet across the Corn Belt. So we can speak in these broad terms, but because the modeling, everything is struggling a little bit with these concepts that I'm describing to you, we still have to follow things almost hour by hour as the commodity markets do. But speaking broadly. Based on what I told you about the oceanic conditions right now, the dryness in the great in the Midwest U.S., the Ohio Valley, uh, anywhere from Iowa over to maybe Western Pennsylvania, that dryness is probably going to continue for a while. I think into midsummer, uh, and until El Nino can develop and and the climate pattern, the global climate flips over to El to El Nino, which I think is going to be late summer at the earliest, we probably are going to be on the dry side in in the in the Midwest states. That the central Great Plains drought seems to be eroding. I think that will continue. So the focus of drought is shifting from Kansas and Nebraska eastward from there into Missouri up towards uh, Iowa right now. I think it'll shift further east as we head towards mid-summer. All right. No, that's uh, that's uh, interesting, Scott. You know, for the corn crop, we really need a change by the middle of July, and maybe that's the struggle. Uh, but for soybeans that can hang on maybe till August, maybe there's something there for them. So. At least it's a a little bit for everybody this growing season. You know, these marine uh, heat waves, as you talk about, um, when you look at the global ocean ocean structure, is is there anything else that kind of pops up on your radar that we should all be thinking about in terms of climate over the next couple of months? There sure is. Uh, One is similar to last year. And when the Mediterranean heated up six, seven degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than normal, That type of warm water was um, emerging off the west coast of Europe uh, this time last year. And it cooled off a little bit during the winter season. But we have another marine heat wave developing off northwest Africa, southwest Europe over the last couple of months. And that that has um, antagonized soil moisture conditions over northwest Africa, Portugal, Spain. There's a drought in place there now. Uh, The marine heat wave seems to be shifting west over the last a month or so and expanding northward. And my concern is that there, there tends to be high pressure ridging over these marine heat waves. Makes sense. The atmosphere aloft is warming over the uh, warmer than normal ocean. And my concern is that another ridge is going to develop and extend over Europe as we go through the summer season. So even though soil moisture conditions across most of the crop areas in Europe and into Western Russia now are, are okay, not everywhere, but most places are okay. I think things can change pretty dramatically once we're into mid and late summer as high pressure ridging uh, becomes almost stagnant uh, over Europe. Uh, I think the axis of the ridge will probably be over northern Europe and down into central Europe, strongest over the northern portion of Europe, but certainly strong enough to create dry climate and eventually anomalous heat. And that ridge, um, based on our uh, interpretation of things here, may shift 
towards uh, the Black Sea region, over towards Caspian Sea to end summer and begin begin autumn. So these ridge areas are produced by these marine heat waves. And we have one off the western portion of Europe right now, Northwest Africa. It's huge, um, seems to be maybe not intensifying, but expanding. So it's, it's a red flag to me, certainly based on what we saw last year. So you remember last year, rivers drying up, all that sort of thing. We've also noticed that with marine heat waves, the drought that that can cause um, comes on very fast. We saw that in, in uh, China last summer. So that's the other aspect of marine heat wave driven drought. It can come on very quickly. It's, we don't need a long duration period of lack of precipitation. Um, it can occur over just a couple of months. And I think Europe uh, into the most, most of the crop areas uh, are at, have, having that risk uh, for, for upcoming summer, especially after the mid portion of July and, and through August. Um, and elsewhere, um, there's, there's many of these, and I'll, I'll, I'll just mention one more. There's a lot of debate now as to whether the Indian monsoon is going to fail or not. And that's related to an Indian Ocean dipole uh, pattern developing, the positive phase. If it were to develop in the traditional way, very warm water compared to normal would be in the Western Indian Ocean, which would cause an awful lot of rain. The Northeast Africa drought would go away because of that. But on the flip side of that heavy rain area, India would probably be on the subsidence side and the monsoon may fail if that occurs. And we were indicating that if you go back a couple of months, but what we're seeing over the last few weeks is that the northern portion of the Indian Ocean has stayed much warmer than normal. So it may be that India, um, which has been wet during May, um, does maintain at least a normal monsoon for the upcoming season. Um, but I do think that there's a risk still of a period of dryness through the, uh, the midsummer uh, months, uh, July uh, in India. So we're watching that very closely. Um, as it relates to ENSO, I think the other um, big forecast is dryness, with, in terms of uh, being confident, is dryness across central and western portions of Indonesia up into Southeast Asia. It looks very dry there as we go through um, you know, the third quarter of uh, 2023. All right. Uh, that, would, uh, that would really hit the palm oil production, Scott. Yes, and, yes. And, and maybe even uh, Australia, the uh, meteorology uh, department of the Australian Weather Bureau came out and said high odds of a drought uh, forthcoming. So I guess absolutely are- agree with that. A, a positive IOD and an El Nino spells drought for next summer in Australia. And that would start to hit the wheat crop. So, you know, again, I as I think back, uh, we had uh, May uh, WASD or the USDA in May came out with a WASD. That assumes normal weather worldwide. But from what I'm hearing from you, there's a lot of potential problems we need to be accustomed to or watching here as we go forward and, and really pay attention as we get into key uh, reproductive periods for crops globally. Um, Scott, the, the, you know, do you think this blo- this warm uh, marine heat or blobs as you call it will, will take uh, root if you will uh, with other forecasters? Because I hear nothing but ENSO today, but I, I really applaud you for, you know, being a little bit outside the box and trying to better understand uh, this, this oceanic warming that you're discussing. I think the, the problem, you know, what, what I try to do is um, broadcast and publish information on this. Yeah, it's operational weather. You know, we don't really have the time, at least for now, to, you know, to 
publish papers. Um, I'd love to be able to do that down the road. But I'm just trying to get this information out to, to as many people as possible. It, you know, if one out of a hundred considered it, I'd, I'd consider that a success. But I think that having paper, you know, the, the Journal of Climate, the various um, academic publications out there have recognized marine heat waves boldly over the last five years, but mostly as it applies to the ecosystem. There are government centers now strictly just following the warm blobs, University of Washington, other parts of NOAA in the Northwest US. New Zealand probably has the biggest center um, for following the warm blobs across uh, the globe. New Zealand has been dramatically affected by by this phenomena. So um, the rate of interest and um, both from academia, and once that starts, I think that we'll be able to get it more broadly uh, you know, push push through the you know the the private sector meteorology and so forth. But that trend has accelerated over the last few years. So even though you may not hear about it from other forecasters, other than maybe myself, I think you know within a few years it, it'll be a, a prominent part of climate forecasts. There's no question in my mind that will happen. Maybe like MGO or maybe in Juliasen uh, uh, occurred maybe a decade ago, where it was uh, you know becoming more and more important in terms of the views of private forecasters going forward. Well, what, what I would say to that, Dan, is I can remember doing a hurricane forecast for the upcoming year at the governor's conference in Florida in the late 1990s, and all the big weather vendors were there, and they were saying, you can't do that. Now they all do. Yeah. So, yeah. so no. it's just another one of those. I totally agree, Scott. Totally agree. And, and again, uh, kudos and applause to you. Um, I just want to thank you, Scott, for coming on and explaining yourself and climate impact and what you see. Um, this uh, podcast is all about informing the world of agriculture in terms of uh, different things and changes and, and ex- really using wisdom uh, that you have acquired over your long career in terms of uh, providing opportunities. So we'll watch and we wish you a very good vacation. We know next week you're heading to the coast, the East Coast for a vacation and we're so glad to have you on this uh, this podcast because the information and the timing couldn't be better. So again, my thanks to you, Scott. Thank you, Dan. It's uh, been a pleasure working with you. You know, through the, the last couple of decades now, time does fly, um, and I really enjoyed talking to you this afternoon. Well, it's so important. You know, Scott has helped Ag Resource and our company so much by identifying the areas that we need to watch weather-wise uh, for each growing season as it comes around hemispherically speaking, both north and south. So enjoy the vacation, Scott. Um, Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you've uh, found it very interesting. Uh, Again, uh, a a new thesis here of marine heat waves and how they affect global weather. Uh, Again, climate is always changing. Uh, I don't know if it's made by man or by God. My my thesis is God, but we'll leave it at that and, and wish you all a very good day. We'll be back next week and talking to an old-time grain trader, allowing his uh, insights into what's going on in the markets. Again, thank you, Scott. This is Dan Bossi. Uh, wishing you all a very good week, and hopefully, weather-wise, you now are informed of the opportunities ahead.